church. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter number 4 tonight. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. The Bible says, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the Word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants, For Jesus' sake, for God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'd ask that you'd bless your word tonight, that you'd speak to the hearts of your people, Lord. We believe that you've tailor-fit this message this evening through the leading of the Holy Ghost, so that each heart might be affected for your glory and honor. So help us now, Lord, to treat your word with the reverence that it deserves. Help us to be surrendered and submitted to the preached word tonight. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all you have done, all you will do. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I want us to give a special emphasis on the seemingly paradoxical statement found in verse number 12, where the Bible says, So then death worketh in us, but life in you. I told you this morning that by God's help we'd be preaching on the ministry. Now, you may say, preacher, what ministry? Do you mean uh, the evangelist ministry? No, not just the evangelist ministry. Oh, you mean the revivalist ministry, like you preached on this morning in revival. No, not just the revivalist ministry. Oh, well, maybe the missionary's ministry or the pastor's ministry. Maybe the gospel singer. Maybe the church musician. No, when I speak of ministry, I'm speaking about the giving of ourselves for the glory of Jesus Christ, that we might serve Him and serve others for His sake. You see, the reality is that that every one of us as Christians ought to be employed in ministry. It may not be something we draw a check for, may not be something we punch a clock for, but every single one of us should see our lives as a sweet savor offering to the Almighty God of heaven, something that we might do that would satisfy Him. I've been reading and studying. If God will help us, I'd love to do a series on the five tabernacle offerings that are talked about in the book of Leviticus. And uh, of those offerings, there's two different categories. Uh, One is the category of offerings for sin or for forgiveness, the sin offering and the trespass offering. But then there's another category that the other three offerings fall into, and it's a sweet savor offering. 
And those three uh, offerings, the burnt offering, the meat offering, and the peace offering, they're all referred to with this unique language. They're called the bread of God. In other words, that which satisfied the appetite of God. Listen, friend, your whole life ought to be lived as a sweet-smelling savor offering to the Lord. What can I do to please God today? What can I do to please God? Boy, we're worried about what lots of folks think, aren't we? We're always worried about what our spouse is going to think, worried about what our family's going to think, worried about what our friends are going to think, worried about what our co-workers are going to think, worried about what our bosses are going to think. But I think one of the great tragedies is that Christians have grown comfortable not caring what God thinks about a matter. When the reality is He ought to be our first consideration. See, ministry is really everything we do for Jesus Christ. Your prayer closet is a ministry. Your devotional time is ministry. Anything that you do that might be for the glory of God, that's ministry. And that's what Paul's talking about. He shows us one central theme for this ministry, one pressing and driving issue for this ministry, uh, the light of the knowledge of the glory of Jesus Christ, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want us to notice tonight just a few things in this passage. If the Lord will help me, I want to try to preach short. Amen. Uh, I want you to notice, first off, verse number 7, we see the setting or the circumstances of our ministry. Uh, Notice that these circumstances are not something that are unique to the individual, but are universal to every believer. If you know Jesus Christ, then these things are true of you. Look again at verse 7. The Bible says, but we have this Treasure. Let me pause there and say a word about this valuable treasure. You say, what treasure is Paul talking about? Well, it's found in verse 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's echoed again, as I already mentioned, back in uh, verse number uh, 4, where it says, "...in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them." Let me just pause right here and say this, that the gospel is a valuable thing. Boy, man, I mean, the gospel is a valuable thing. Do you understand that we have the balm for every sickness, for every illness? We have the answer for man's chief questions. We have the peace which passeth all understanding. We have not just an answer, we have the answer as God's people. Christ used singular statements all through His ministry. You won't find a plurality of interest when it comes to the Savior. He used statements of singularity. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Statements like this. I am the way, the truth, the life. You say, what about this valuable treasure? It's the valuable treasure. And you and I have it if we've been born again. You say, how do do you get a hold of this treasure? Well, I, I think it's not only through the expression of the gospel, but through the experience of the gospel. Not only that we can just tell people that Jesus died for them, but that we know what we're talking about because we've been to Calvary ourselves. I mean, we know we have this treasure. This ministry that we've received as we've received mercy in verse number 1. This gospel, this calling, this commission to make a difference and to make an impact in the lives of others for the glory of God and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a valuable treasure. But I want you to notice not only do we see a valuable treasure, but we see a vessel of weakness. It says we have this treasure in what? In earthen vessels. Boy, I love that language. 
You say, why do you love that, preacher? Because there's days I wake up feeling like an earthen vessel. Oh, yeah, there's days I, I wake up, you know, and I, I feel like the golden chalice, but it don't take long for me to be knocked off that high horse. Because most days I wake up feeling like the earthen vessel. Frail, fragile, weak, and easily broken. That's what the Bible says about you and I. Some of you, you don't want to give the gospel out because you're not a golden chalice. You're just an earthen vessel. And yet God's chosen earthen vessels to house this treasure in. Some of you are scared to give the gospel. You say, I don't know what I'd say. Sure you do. You know what you'd say. You'd tell them what Jesus did for you. That's what you'd say. That's what you'd say. I appreciate what Brother Larry said about the Romans Road found in, in, in our bulletin. He said it's not the only uh, way, but it is a way. And what he means by that, uh, that, of course, Jesus is the only way, but meaning that you don't necessarily have to lead someone through the Romans Road for them to be saved. There's lots of passages you can point them to and show them Jesus Christ in. And sometimes we have it in our head that if we don't say it just so, if we don't present it just so, somebody ain't going to get saved. Can I let you in on a little hint? They're not getting saved because of the way you said it anyway. They're not getting saved because of your oratorical abilities. They're not getting saved because you're just so clever with your word wordsmanship. They're getting saved because the Holy Spirit of God is showing them that they're lost sinners in need of Calvary. At least that's, that's why I got saved. As a ten-year-old boy in my bedroom alone, I got saved. No one there to lead me through a prayer. No one there to ask me to raise my hand. No one there to push. No one there to prod. Nobody except the Holy Ghost. But He was able. He was able to show me my need. And some of you are scared to give out this treasure. You're scared to bear it forth because you're an earthen vessel. And yet, that's the very kind that God chooses. We see not only this this, uh, vessel of weakness, but I want you to notice this vision of divine glory. Why did God choose it such? Now, I'm going to tell you how most of us think. Because most of us, if we as God, we do things a lot different, and we better thank the Lord that we're not God, because it'd be a mess. And, and I know how some folks... This is one of the things that just absolutely gets in my mind and turns somersaults and gets me worked up about the doctrine, or the false doctrine, the heresy of Calvinism. Because it's this notion that God looked down from heaven and looked at a certain group of people and said, I want them on my team. I'd have you know that when God looked down from heaven, He didn't see anybody worthy of His team. He didn't see anybody with a good batting average or a good percentage. When God looked down from heaven, He saw lost, wretched sinners. Every one of them depraved. Every one of them in need of Calvary. Every one of them helpless and hopeless. Not a one of them worth more than any of the rest of them. And the Bible says He tasted death for every man. Every man. But some Christians have that notion, you know, that God's putting together a dream team. (laughs) If He was, there wouldn't be nobody but Jesus Christ on it. Amen? He's not putting together a dream team. That's not the idea. And so why does God use vessels of weakness? People so easily shattered and broken, so easy to fall and to fail. Why does He do this? Notice what our verse says. Look again with me at verse number 7. But we have this treasure... In earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Let me tell you what's going to open that Bible up for you. Are you ready? Let me tell you what's going to make this Bible make sense to you, at least in some small semblance. When you get in your mind and when you convince your flesh that whether your flesh likes it or not, it's still the truth. When you understand that every single thing 
from the moment that God hit the big clock, if you want to call it that, and began time, all the way throughout all of it, from eternity past to eternity future, every single thing that's ever lived or breathed, every word that's been uttered, every action that's been uh, through its own energy has, has accomplished anything, every bit of it has been for the glory of God. You'll understand that book a lot more when you get that in your mind. That it's all about the glory of God. It's not about your glory. not about your comfort. I know there's popular preachers. It's hard to say that word preacher talking about some of these folks. But there's people out there, and you've seen the videos, you've read the articles about these folks saying, oh, it's all about us. It's all about us. We pray, it's for us. We worship God, it's for us. It's all about us. And that's what God really wants. You know, it's all about us. I get worried when people start talking about us too much. That sounds a little bit too humanistic, doesn't it? All about me. No, something that you'll find is that it's not all about you. It's all about Him. Every bit of it's for His glory. And listen to me. If God should so choose to snuff you out in a moment with no apology, with no sympathy, and do it for His glory, I'm not saying He will, but He'd have every right to. He'd have every, He is the Creator. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Him. We're only here for His glory. You say, I, I can't rationalize that. Well, don't rationalize it. Believe it. You say, I can't accept that. That's unpalatable to me. No, that's not unpalatable to you. That's unpalatable to your flesh. It's your flesh that hates that. It's your flesh that seeks to rise in rebellion against God. It's your flesh that doesn't like that. The spiritual man can discern that and understand the implications of it. You see, we find the divine vision of God concerning our ministry, my ministry, your ministry, anything that we might do, is that it might be for His ultimate and greatest glory. That's the reason. I, I, you know, there's some out here. I'm tr- I, listen, I'm just trying to let the Lord lead me right now. There's some out here that believe we ought to try to win people at any cost. No matter what compromise it means. No matter what it, no matter what it takes. Go anywhere, anytime, sit with anybody. And there's lots of folks that believe that that's the road to ministerial success. But I would have you know that the grand purpose and scheme for God for our lives is not that we win as many people to Christ as possible. Well, I know, I, I just shivered your timbers, didn't I? No, but the book of Ephesians says that we might be to the praise of His glory. Glorifying God is more important and filling pews. I'm not opposed to filling pews. I'm not opposed to winning people. I'm not opposed to the gospel going out. It needs to go out. I'm not saying we shouldn't. God wants us to reach people. God wants us to reach masses if we can reach masses. So I'm not being dismissive of that. But what ranks in prominence higher than evangelistic efforts, higher than ecumenical fellowship, is the glory of God. That's more important. That's more important. You say, I don't know about that. Well, I do. (laughs) The psalmist says, Thou hast magnified thy word above thy name. Stop and let that ring in your ears for a minute. Thou hast magnified thy word above thy name. There's none other name given among men whereby you must be saved. We call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The name of Christ is important. And yet the Bible says He's magnified His word above His name. The name of Jesus is, is, is the means whereby folks are saved. But the Word of God is exalted above that. That ought to tell us where God's priorities are. 
That ought to tell us. Uh, Jude said that uh, that uh, he thought it needful when he when he determined to write unto you of the common salvation. Hey, he uh, he uh, determined that it was first needful that he exhort you that you should hold fast unto the faith once delivered unto the saints. I'm saying there's more important things than counting noses and filling pews. The glory of God's more important than that. That we be found unto His praise and honor and glory. You say, preacher, are you saying we need to be these spiritual introverts? No. That's not what I'm saying. I believe in separatism. I don't believe in isolationism. And I know some churches that do believe in isolationism. I know some churches do everything they can to keep folks out their door, and I'm against that. But I do want you to understand that there's greater things than being able to put another notch on our belt or say, look how big our ministry is. The glory of God supersedes that. God doesn't. God uses you because He can get glory out of you. That's why He uses you. God uses me because He can look at me and you can look at me and say, that can be Toby. It has to be God if it's anything. It has to be God if it's anything. If there's anything worth mentioning, anything that'll last, anything that has impact, it's not Him. He's just an earthen vessel. It must be God. So the weaker you are, the more usable you are to God. Sometimes we say, well, you know, if I was just better. No. Oh, Lester Olaf say, you never have to worry about getting too small for God, but you can get too big for God in a hurry. And the fact of the matter is, if we'd allow God to put us down to our right size, then He could get the right amount of glory out of our lives. We see the setting of our ministry. But notice the suffering of our ministry. Look at the next verse, verse number 8. And I'm going to confess to you that we're going to split up verses 8 and 9. We're going to go right down the middle of it and split them up. And I'll show you what I mean. Look at the first first category of suffering that's mentioned. It says in verse number 8, we are troubled on every side. Boy, it's almost as though Paul was watching a movie of the circumstances that we're observing today. As Christians, it seems as though the attacks are coming from every side, doesn't it? From the academic realm, we're told that God does not exist. From the spiritual realm, we're told that we have a greater priority than God. From the moral realm, we're told that if it feels good, do it. From the political realm, we're told that if we're ever going to... Listen, it ain't crossing the aisle that bothers me. It's crossing the boundaries of God's Word that bothers me. We hear all this talk about crossing the aisle, crossing the aisle, crossing the aisle. The thing that bothers me is not that a politician does or don't cross the aisle. It's that every single one of them, it seems, will cross the boundaries of God's Word. And it seems as though we're troubled on every side. You turn on the news and it looks like the world's unraveling. We're troubled at every side. Could I say to you that that is an intrinsic quality of the Christian experience? It's always been that way. I wish that we could take that uh, preacher, but it's hard to say it, preacher, if, if they want to call her that, and drag her back to a Roman Colosseum and see Christians that are getting ready to meet the vicious teeth of wild beasts. I wish, if I could, that we could take her on a trip through time and see martyrs burnt at the stake, drawn and quartered, beheaded, and crucified. The reality is that we've always been troubled on every side. 
Suffering is an intrinsic quality of serving God. If you're going to serve God, there'll be times that you suffer. You say, why is that? Well, he suffered and he left us an example that we should suffer. The book of Second Peter says. He left us this example. As he was, so are we in this world. The book of 1 John says. And just as he was hated of this world, we're going to be hated of this world if we're really going to serve him. We're troubled on every side. Notice the next statement. It says... Perplexed. Perplexed. What an interesting category of suffering to be included in the Christian experience. Confusion. Confusion. That's what it means to be perplexed, doesn't it? I think you've all got a good grasp of it. Most of you look a little perplexed right now. Perplexed. To be confounded and confused. To be disoriented by your circumstances. The Bible says that perplexion, that'd be it, wouldn't it? Perplexion or complexion or infection. Being perplexed is a natural quality of serving God. You know what that means? Don't expect to understand everything if you're going to serve God. Some folks are waiting for God to explain everything to them before they'll do anything for Him. You'll never do anything for Him. Because this thing's a faith thing. We walk by faith and not by sight. It's not that God's against sight. It's just that, that with, without faith it's impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. That's what Hebrews eleven six says. It's not that God's against sight. It's just that He's a God whom having not seen we love. This is a faith opera. It's going to have to be done by faith. If you're going to serve God, there's going to be times when you don't see fruit from it. There's going to be times you don't see the result of it. There's going to be times when it seems like everything is going wrong. There's going to be times, listen now, there's, be, well, there's going to be times when you'll serve God and it'll seem like it's doing no good. Perplexed. Paul said we're perplexed at times. We don't understand what's going on. I want you to notice the next phrase that's used. Look at it with me. He says that we're troubled on every side. Then he says, we are perplexed. Then he uses this terminology. He says, persecuted. Persecuted. Persecution is the deliberate singling out and harassment of a particular group or faction of people or an individual. That's what persecution is. In other words, persecution is not when, when you act like a fool and people call you a fool. That's not persecution. Some folks, what's wrong with them today? It's not that they're suffering. It's that they're stupid. Amen? And what they're going through is a result of them being stupid. Stupidity is a sickness that is epidemic on our society. No, what persecution is, is persecution is when we serve God and people single us out, harass us on account of it. So, oh, preacher, that don't happen. You know, that happens in China. That happens in, in, you know, in the Middle East. That, that don't happen here. Well, first off, let me say this. The kind of persecution they are experiencing, I look for it to be in this country one day, maybe in my lifetime. There may come a day, and I don't, I don't say this as a badge of honor, but there may come a day that folks come through those doors and put guns to our heads. Oh, I know the, the government will call me a terrorist for warning you about that, but they're going to do it whether I warn you or not, so I might as well go ahead and warn you. There's coming a day when that kind of persecution will come. That they, I promise you that I'm on watch lists. I'm being serious now. I'm not being funny. I'm not bragging. I'm just saying, I, I promise you that I am on watch lists 
for some of the things that I've said. They'll be coming to our doorstep before they're going to the big ones where nothing's ever said. I promise you persecution is coming, but persecution exists in small and subtle ways even now. Maybe there's been times when you've been persecuted in your job because you were a Christian. Saw other folks promoted and you passed up. Maybe there's been times in your family you've been persecuted. Uh, let me ask you this. Does it, you ever heard someone say this? If you keep talking that way, I ain't going to come around here no more. Persecuted. Persecution is an intrinsic quality of the Christian experience when it's truly a Christian experience. Yea, in all they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Notice this final word that's used. He says we are troubled on every side. We're perplexed, we're persecuted. It says we're cast down. Cast down. Listen, this isn't very encouraging what I'm about to tell you, but it's the truth. Failure is an intrinsic quality of the Christian experience. That's what it means to be cast down, doesn't it? To be downtrodden, to be thrown to the floor. We think of the idea of failure. Mistakes, disappointment. There's going to be times when you're going to try to live for God and you're going to fail. And there's going to be times when you try to do something for God. Maybe you are living for God, but even in trying to do something for God, you're going to fail. One of the things I had to come to terms with very, very early in pastoring was being comfortable with the notion of failure. I'm going to tell you something. The only kind of pastors that don't fail is the ones that don't try anything. The only kind of churches that don't have ministries that fail is ones that don't try nothing. They're having the same meetings that they've had for 60 years. Their, their, uh, their church runs like a well-oiled clock. They start at 11 o'clock sharp and end at 12 o'clock dead. And they just are chugging along doing the same thing that they've always done. And they're dying on the vine. If you're going to try great things for God, you're going to have great failures at times. There's going to be times you're going to fall flat on your face. But you know what the Bible says about a righteous man? That a righteous man falleth seven times, and the Lord raiseth him back up. See, I see the suffering of ministry, but I see the sufficiency of ministry. I told you we was going to split it down the middle. He says we're troubled on every side. But notice what he says then. Here's the paradox that Paul liked to use. Troubled on every side, yet not distressed. That phrase, distressed, is very interesting. Can I tell you what I think of when I think of the word distressed? Now, you, you, don't, you don't necessarily have to look at it this way. Maybe I'm carnal as an old goat for thinking this. But when I think of the word distressed, I think the idea of a piece of clothing or a piece of furniture that has a distressed appearance about it. You know what I mean. Uh, there was a time, y'all grew up in a time where you had so many patches on your on your clothes, just try to keep something covering your naked hind end. And uh, you, you grew up in a time, a lot of you did, where you didn't, you didn't hem pants, you just walked the hem off of them. You know what I'm talking about. Then my generation came along. Now all of a sudden, kids are paying $90 for jeans that look like something you would have thrown away. And there is an intentional design behind that. In fact, some of these manufacturers will go and you wouldn't believe the pressure 
that they'll put these pieces of clothing through to try to give them that distressed look. You know the same thing's true about furniture. There was a time when, when you were growing up where all your furniture, I, I mean, it, it, it looked like junk because it was junk. Amen? You didn't try to make it look that way. Now people go and buy a, a $1,000 dresser and then go beat it all to pieces to give it that distressed look. Because it seems to be worth more when you do that. You see, when I think of the word distressed, I think of pressure. I think of friction. I think of the idea of destruction. Paul says about his ministry, he says, We were troubled on every side, and yet God in a supernatural way escaped us from much of the pressure that we should have been feeling. Let me tell you something. Everybody everybody just stays tore up all the time anymore. Isn't that true? I was telling someone the other day, we've not adapted well to the 24-hour news cycle. There was some some of you. You grew up in a time where where uh, Ted Brokaw, whoever got on the news eight o'clock, told you what was going on. You believed him. That was it. You know, let's watch Mr. Ed, and that was the way you grew up. But then came along twenty four. You stick with me. I got a point to this. Then came along the twenty four hour news cycle, and now you pick your flavor of news and you drink your fill. Sometimes you'll turn it on. It'll look like the world's going to pieces. You can turn it on another one, it'll look like we've not got a problem in the world. You pick whatever that flavor is, and then you stick with it. And there's times when it can feel like it's too much for you. How does the Christian respond? Well, Paul says that though there was trouble on every side, that God was sufficient enough to keep it from distressing them. I'm going to tell you here in a minute how he did that, but you just stick with me. Notice the next phrase. It says, perplexed but not in despair. He says, though we were confounded, we were not discouraged. Though we didn't understand, we didn't give up. As I said a moment ago, you're going to have to make up your mind that you're willing to serve God when you don't understand, because most of the time, you won't understand. Most of the time, it won't make sense. Most of the time, you won't be able to make heads or tails out of what's going on in your life as you serve God. There's going to be times you're going to do as Asaph did when he looked over the congregation and he looked over the experiences of God's people. And he said, here I am trying to serve God and live for Him and do something for Him. And I met with heartache. And he said, then I look out and I see the wicked man and the uh, the godless man. And he seems to flourish. There's times when if you have to know and if you have to understand, you'll quit. That's just the truth. You might as well get comfortable with living on faith and living in faith and living by faith. Because if you're going to live for God, that's the only way to do it. He says that we were uh, troubled at every side. He said, though we were troubled, we were not distressed. He says we were perplexed, but not in despair. And notice this, he said we were persecuted. I like this. Look with me. But not forsaken. Not forsaken. The first two statements that Paul makes reflect his attitude or their attitude or their experience. And the last two reflect what God did for them in the midst of it. The first two, he says, all this stuff going on, but we weren't distressed. All of this stuff confusing and confounding to us, but we were not in despair. Why? Because though we were persecuted, 
He says we weren't forsaken. Let me tell you something. Suffering ain't going to last forever, but we will. Isn't that true? Suffering ain't going to last forever, but we will. And we may be the minority right now, but we won't be forever. We may be persecuted now, but there's one that sticketh closer than a brother that will never leave you, that will never forsake you. You do your best to get away from him, and you won't get away from him. I heard someone say one time, said, well, you know, there's arguing about the eternal security of the believer. And uh, you might as well argue with the laws of gravity as to argue about the eternal security of the believer. It is an incontrovertible doctrine of the Word of God that the believer is eternally saved and sure and secured under the day of redemption once he's put his faith in Jesus Christ. Someone, they were fussing about it one time, and, and somebody said, well, you know, uh, God will spew you out. And the other fellow said, well, you're not in his mouth, you're in his hand. I say amen. said, well, you know, what if somebody gets me out of his hand? He said, well, you know, the Bible says, Christ said in John chapter 10, no man shall be able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And then so this fellow really, he thought he had something, you know. He thought he knew. And so he said, well, what if I pluck myself out of the Father's hand? And that fellow knew a little bit more Bible than him, and he quoted in the book of Isaiah where the Bible says that he hath measured the span of the universe with his hand, or the universe with the span of his hand. You know how big our universe is? We can fill this room with the numbers it would take to express to you how big our universe is. You go ahead and do your best to pluck yourself out of the Father's hand. You better get a good running head start. Because we're talking light years and light years and light years. Why, you could no sooner swim out of this universe than you could get yourself out of the Father's hand. Persecuted. Going through trials and tribulation and discouragement at times. Persecuted, sure. But not forsaken. Notice the next one. He says, we're cast down. We already reflected this. But he said, not destroyed. Not destroyed. Are you aware that our great victory has already been won in Jesus Christ? We don't belong to this world. This world can't do with us as it pleases. We don't belong to the devil any longer. We did it one time. He was our father before we got saved. That's what John chapter 8 says. But now we've been born again into a different family. We don't belong to him. We belong to the Lord now. And just as Job entered through the darkness of his trials, only by the permission of the word and will of God, you and I, we may be cast down but we'll not be destroyed. First off, I don't believe we can be destroyed because I don't believe in the annihilation of anything. Not any person. I know there's some. The Seventh-day Adventists believe in the total annihilation of the unregenerate, but I, I don't believe that. You say, why? Because the rich man in hell lift up his eyes being in torment. No, you see, you are an eternal being that will spend eternity in one of two places, either in the blessed presence of Jesus Christ or in the damnation of the lake of fire, one of those two places, you will spend eternity. So no, we won't be destroyed on that account, but I think it even goes further. I think when it says not destroyed, it's not just saying that you're not going to be annihilated, but I think what it's saying is that though you may endure these failures, you ultimately have victory in Christ. We heard it on Friday morning, a young man saying, I'm a winner either way. Boy, that sentiment is true today. You may fail in your life, but ultimately 
you'll still be met in heaven with Him if you put your faith in Him. We see the sufficiency of this ministry. I don't have time to preach the rest of my message, so, but can I give it to you? Would that be okay? I want us to notice not only the setting of this ministry, not only the sufficiency of this ministry, not only the suffering of this ministry, but notice the strength of this ministry. Look at verse 10. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that I don't have enough time to unpack this, but I'm just going to try to touch on it. We see, first off, what's the secret to staying faithful to the Lord? What's the secret to staying faithful to the Lord? Some of you would say, well, the secret is to read your Bible. Well, no, because there's been plenty of infidels that have studied the Bible in an academic sense. Some of you would say, well, the key to staying faithful to the Lord is staying in your prayer life. But the truth is, prayer life in and of itself cannot be the only thing that sustains us. You say, oh, well, the key is stay in church. Let me ask you a question. How many of y'all, and I don't want to raise hand, but, but how many of y'all have known somebody that was in church for decades and then got out? A phrase that sums up the only strength that we find, and it is the phrase, the crucified life. To find ourselves dead to ourselves, but alive unto God. See, the only way that you stick in this thing is by getting yourself out of this thing. The only way that you stay faithful to the Lord is by dying daily, as Paul said. You say, preacher, how do I do that? When Paul speaks of dying daily, what he's speaking of is a conscious, deliberate, and repetitive surrendering of himself to the leading of the Holy Spirit of God and to the will of God and to the Word of God. That's the only way. This thing doesn't get done through the energy of our flesh. It only gets done through the Christ life within us. This thing doesn't get accomplished through us just trying and through willpower. It only gets accomplished when we lay ourselves down at the altar. When we say, Lord, it's okay if I'm troubled on every side. Because you can't trouble a dead man. Lord, it's okay if I'm perplexed, because a dead man doesn't have to understand. Lord, it's okay if I'm persecuted, because you can't persecute a dead man. Lord, it's okay if I'm cast down, because you can't cast down a dead man. You say, preacher, quit talking in, in platitudes. Well, let me put it as plain as I can. To understand that any and all that we do, we do for His glory and for His sake. And so being as we do it for His glory and for His sake, and our ambitions and our aspirations we have laid aside for His glory, then it's His responsibility to see to our needs, to our protection, to our strength, to our faithfulness. To understand that it's not about you and it's not about me. It's not about people clapping their hands and appreciating you and patting you on the back. Oh, uh, that's wonderful when they do. But there'll be times when they won't. And if what you're serving for is that, you won't serve very long. But it doesn't matter that you're perplexed because you're not serving because you want to know everything. It doesn't matter that you're cast down because you're not serving so that you might be successful in men's eyes. As long as the Master is pleased with me, that's all that I need. 
Men may call me a failure. Ministry may ne- my, my ministry or the ministry that God has counted me worthy to be in may never be written down in books. It may never be uh, lauded and applauded. It may never be the kind of thing that men admire. But if I'm serving where Jesus wants me, in the way that Jesus wants me, when Jesus wants me, and for the glory of Jesus Christ, I'm a success. can't cast down a dead man, you see, because he's dead. Not only the crucified life, but the Christ life within us. What do we do then, preacher? If my ambitions, if my aspirations are dead, if what I want out of life is is unimportant relative to the glory of God, then, then how do I live? What do I do? Paul answered this question for us. He said, I'm crucified with Christ in Galatians 2.20. Nevertheless, I live. See, Paul was a rather practical fellow when you really get down to it. Peter said that Paul's sayings were hard to be understood. And I understand that. There are times that Paul just wraps my mind in a knot. But on the other hand, Paul could be an immensely practical fellow. He says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. He's saying the spiritual crucifixion that I have to uh, take part of every day in laying myself down at an altar, that presents a problem, which is what is going to be the driving passion and motive and guiding uh, force in my life? What is going to be the thing that drives me? I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I. Paul says, I don't resurrect myself. He said, I don't sit there and, and say, Lord, you can have my life and then get back up and live my life. No, 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 no. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, I need about three more church services to really get this to you. He's speaking about justification. He uses that same language in the book of Philippians, chapter number 3. Not faith in the Son of God, the faith of the Son of God. And what he's talking about is the life of Christ lived in us and through us. How does that happen? The Bible says as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. We have the mind of Christ. How? Because we have the Spirit of Christ. Through surrendering ourselves to the leading and guidance of the Holy Spirit, Christ is able to exercise His will through our lives day by day. What does the passage say before us? Always bearing about about in our bodies uh, the dying of the Lord Jesus, uh, that the life of the Lord Jesus might also be made manifest in our mortal flesh. The Christ life, the will of God exercised through us, not through a standard set up by a man, not through a pattern set up by a ministerial association, but through surrender to the Holy Spirit of God in the day by day of things. That's the strength of our ministry. That's how we keep serving God when everyone else is falling and failing. That's how we keep faithful in the midst of trials. It's to say, Lord, I lay myself before you today. I'm nothing. You're everything. God, if you'll lead, I'll follow. If you'll tell me who to witness to, I'll witness to them. If you'll tell me what my life needs to be got rid of, Lord, I'll get it out of my life. If you'll tell me what I need to do more of, Lord, I'll do more of that. Yet not I, Paul said, but Christ liveth in me. Oh, His life must flow through us as the vine does through the branches. And only then will we bear fruit.
What we're trying to do is we're trying to imitate that life, living a Christian walk that's cut off from the vine. And we wonder why we're not bearing fruit. We're not bearing fruit because that life does not come through the appearance of the branch, through the sturdiness of the branch or through the straightness of the branch, but through its value and connection to the vine that it's a part of. The strength of our ministry. Notice the third thing. Not only the crucified life and the Christ life, but the consistent life. Notice that word, always. Always bearing about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Always. I'll tell you why some of us have never done anything. It's because we won't stay faithful long enough for God to do anything in our lives. We're like a roller coaster. We're up one second, we're down the next. We're devoted one minute, and we've cast it off the next. And then we wonder why we can see no success in our life, no encouragement in the lives of others, no ability to make an impact. It's because we're all over the place, that's why. If you won't get consistent, then you won't make an impact. You've got to get to the place where He means more to you than anything. And you're going to make Him Lord of your life, King of your castle. And you're going to do what He would have you to do, not just today, but tomorrow, the next day, the next day. So many of us, we get in a fervor, you know. And it's easy to get in a fervor. You know what the great thing was about the burning bush? I think you're still with me, so I'm just going to preach. That was my introduction. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Somebody will get up and leave if I say that. You know the great thing about the burning bush? Not that it was burning. In fact, it was a pretty common occurrence in the desert because of the immense heat and the dry, arid climate. It wasn't an uncommon thing for a bush to, to spontaneously burst into flames. No, Moses didn't say, look at this great sight, this bush is burning. He said, look at this great sight. This bush is burning, and yet it's not consumed. See, we get focused on the flame. But Moses understood face to face with that bush that it wasn't the fire that was glowing, it was the fire within that made a difference. We get, we get all excited when someone gets in a fervor. And that's good, man. Bless the Lord for it. I'd rather, listen, I'd rather calm uh, a, a, a living fanatic than try to resurrect a dead corpse. Amen? I'm for it. I'm not against it. But the thing is, it's easy to get in a fervor on a Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. What will you be on Monday? Are you willing to be consistent? It's the consistent life. I'm just going to read this last verse and then I'm done. You know, it amazes me. I've told folks that every Sunday for four years, and they still believe me. Look at verse 11. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. It interests me how that living is characterized. What a paradox. For we which live are always delivered unto death. What a paradoxical statement that you've not learned to live until you've learned to die. And you're not ready to die until you've learned to live. A lot of what we call living is really death. And a lot of what we're so afraid of as dying to self is really the doorway to living. You know what the Bible says about she that liveth in pleasure? says that she's dead while she liveth. She's dead while she liveth. What about those of us that have learned to deny self, to 
crucify self and the living Jesus Christ, we're alive while we're dying. You won't learn what living truly is till you put all yourself on the, on the line for Jesus Christ. You'll never know it. It'll always be ungraspable out in the distance somewhere. You'll never really know what living is until you learn to sell out to Him. It'll always be something folks talk about and preach about, but something you'll never experience until you're willing to have enough faith in Him to say, Lord, if You tell me this is real, I'll believe You. I'll give You everything. I'll give You all that I am. Lord, I want to know what it is to live. And the answer from the Word of God is then you must learn how to die. What are we trying to do this evening? Did we come just to hear another sermon? Or did we come that God might change our lives? It doesn't begin through the life. It begins through the death. And I wonder how many here, if they were to be honest before the Lord, would have to admit there's areas of my life where I've not died to self. There's areas of my life that I've not given to Christ. Can I invite you tonight to learn what it is to truly live through dying to self?